Our reading today is Proverbs 8, verse 1 through 21. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on top of the high hill, beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things, for my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles all the judges of the earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. This is God's word. So we're gonna finish the book of Proverbs today, and I don't know about you, but it just flew by. Seven weeks has just gone so fast, and I'm gonna miss the book of Proverbs, but I hope it's blessed you, and let me tell you what our supreme desire is at Calvary Chapel. We want you to become what we call self-feeders. We believe that people that love God love the scriptures, and sermons are wonderful, and church is wonderful, and podcasts are excellent, but there's nothing like taking the word of God for yourself, ingesting it in your heart, and then living it out and having God speak to you. And so that's what we long for you, so we've whet your appetite a little. There's so much more in Proverbs. I pray that you figure out a way to ingest it. It's 31 chapters, so it breaks out to about a chapter a day, or you can look at some of the great themes that we've looked at and uh, really grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God. It is a wonderful book. So uh, I had one final decision to make. How do we end Proverbs? And uh, knew where I was going from the beginning, Proverbs chapter 8. It's not only my favorite chapter in Proverbs, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Here's the rub. Uh, I have about eight commentaries on Proverbs. I try and buy a couple new commentaries every time I teach through a book. And every one of them skips chapter eight. Every one of them. Uh, I was out to dinner at a ministry friend's house and looked on his shelf and I found two more commentaries and nothing on chapter eight. I almost switched up and didn't do it. So I want you to know, I do work hard and I did work hard this week. So maybe you'll get some of the fruit of my labor. Uh, from what we just read, 
And what we're going to read to the end of the chapter, you're going to have a decision to make. Is Solomon the writer, certainly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is he writing about lady wisdom? Is this a literary tool? Is this a way for Solomon to take wisdom and identify it in skin and bone so we can understand it? Or is it the person of Jesus Christ? Or is it the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom? Now, I think that's a moot point because it's somewhat irrelevant to me because Jesus is the essence of all wisdom. I think we understand that. It's John who writes the final gospel and he writes nothing about genealogies and nothing about, you know, all the, what the other writers write. He burst on in his opening verses and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and everything that was made was made by him and there's nothing that was made that wasn't made without him. Wow. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Colossae, what we know is chapter 1, verse 15, he says, speaking of Jesus, he is the image, he's the icon, the impress of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things that were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, and he's talking about the unseen world now, thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. All these things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Romans says that the Godhead is one, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Father, they're all one. So whatever we're talking about here in chapter 8, and we're going to go through it, and I think it'll be fun, I just want you to know Jesus is the essence of wisdom. He said it himself, a greater than Solomon is here. And so I love this chapter. Uh, as we go through it, let's remember we've been studying wisdom for seven weeks. And if I could drill wisdom down to one thing, it's this. It's being able to apply knowledge at the right time, at the right circumstance. To make wise decisions is the idea. Now, you and I live now in the information age. But whether we like it or not, the iPhone or the smartphone has changed the way we live. It's changed culture. So we have this download of information all the time, but, but we're not talking about information here. Uh, I remember my son came down the stairs one time, and I was reading the newspaper, and it's one of my great loves. I used to read three, four newspapers a day. And my son said, uh, reading day-old news again, huh? And what he was saying is, you know, I could just boot up my iPhone and get all the current information and I had to share with him, I don't read the newspaper for information. I love the commentary of the specific writers that I love to read. I like to pick their brains. And so we're not looking at information here. We're looking at the transfer of knowledge to the living of life, to understand that God has an order, and then we want to walk in that divine order. What I want to drive home today is this, and we, we talked a lot about it in week one. The wisdom of God is diametrically opposed to the wisdom and the ideas of unredeemed men. Does everybody understand that? Now, you can walk into a bookstore and you can read self-help books, and, and there's some wonderful things in there because all truth is God's truth. But in chapter 1, when it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what Solomon is saying is that the wise understand who God is and that he's the gateway to all understanding. Contrast it, the fools despise this type of wisdom. Now this might be a little harsh, but what the Bible is saying is that if you don't acknowledge God and his ways, you are a fool. It doesn't mean you're feeble-minded or unintellectual. It's just saying you're a very foolish person. 
I mentioned at the beginning of the series Stephen Hawking, the famous brilliant astrophysicist from Cambridge University, died recently. Uh, when he died, they put on his, the stone in front of his grave an equation that only three people in the world understand. That's how brilliant he was. Overcame a debilitating illness. There's a movie about him. Um, but I know it's not politically correct. The Bible would classify him as a fool. All the knowledge and wisdom in the world, but never acknowledge God. Right before he died, he said, belief in an afterlife is a fairy tale for only people who are afraid of death. He said, life has no meaning, and if you're trying to find meaning, it's a stupid pursuit. Now, I wonder what the undergraduates at Cambridge University philosophy department thought about that, because that's what they're studying, the pursuit of why we're here, the meaning of life. This brilliant man said, you're a fool if you're trying to put meaning and purpose into raising your kids and going to work every day. Um, about 20 years ago, the bands and the artists I grew up listening to started their farewell tours. And it was kind of ambivalent to go to because here's these legends of rock and these icons you had, but now they're in their 40s and almost in their 50s and you're glad they're still around, but they've kind of aged out and it was painful to watch. Well, well now, Fleetwood Mac's on their 50-year reunion tour. So 20 years later, they're still touring. Paul Simon is on his Homeward Bound tour. He's 77. And what he's proving out is the nearer your destination, the more he slips sliding away. <laughs> Simon was raised in a Jewish home, heard the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Raised to hear that, the scriptures. He dedicates his concerts now to saving the whales. And he says, I've come to doubt everything I've ever learned. And I stand here in virtual unbelief. Solomon got there. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. Took all the wisdom of God and set it aside and went after the pursuit of pleasure and sexuality and money. And, and he had the money to do it and he had the power far more than you do. You only have potential. He self-actualized it. And it was vanity of vanities. It drove him mad. And at the end, he writes this in Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. In other words, if you start with the fear of God and if you end with the fear of God, things will go well with you. And they'll certainly go well with you in the afterlife. And here in chapter 8, he personifies wisdom in verse 1 and says, Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift her voice? Now, he makes wisdom a woman, which I find fascinating. Because the Bible was light years ahead in its egalitarianism, Right? You know, women today are running all over and there's feminist manifestos and all. There, there is nothing more uplifting to women than the Bible and it was written thousands of years ago. And this isn't a goddess, right? This is what you would expect in other religious literature. The Bible comes right out and never talks about any of that. It, it, it's a woman of virtue. We talked about the Hebrew word virtue as a force, like a tornado. And it's talking about this woman as a force. And I love it because it's a contrast of the adulterous woman, which we've seen in many chapters. And now Solomon said, here is a woman of virtue, the personification of wisdom, like the Statue of Liberty. She's strong and powerful. And the wisdom here doesn't say it cries out in the churches or synagogues, although certainly this is the place of learning. 
But I love this. It's for everyone. It's in the streets, the top of the hill. It's at the gates. It's at the doors. It's for sons and daughters and fools. Verse 6, to teach us truth. Wisdom is available to everyone. Everyone in this room would acknowledge that way before you ever stepped or crossed the threshold of a church, someone shared Christ with you or you saw the scriptures. God has a way of going into the marketplaces, going into college campuses. God found us. And this wisdom is crying out to all that would ever hear. Now, we live in America. America, what really forged us ahead is education. There was a lot of Christianity, a lot of other things, but we valued education. People come from all over the world to come to our great universities. And as Lyndon Johnson said, education will thrust us forward, and it has. Here's the problem with our educational system, and there's scores of books written now of how broken it is. No longer are we learning with the idea of understanding or to value wisdom. Everything's economic utility today. Get my kid in Ivy League school, uh, let me take whatever is the hot job so I can make a lot of money. So when I make a lot of money, I can pay off $100,000 of school debt. That's economic utility. And there's a void of learning today. If you were alive in 1642 and you were a freshman going to Harvard University, they would have handed you a handbook. The handbook would have said, let every student be properly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and of his education which is to know Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. It's the same thing you would have heard at Yale, Princeton, Brown. I was at Dartmouth last summer. There's a statue there to the man who started Dartmouth. He started Dartmouth, believer, to bring the gospel to Native Americans. All these universities were, were started to train ministers that would take the gospel into all the world. Today, we've removed God from the curriculum. We've moved God from the campus. Uh, I was in Paris for two days after our Israel trip, visited some of the great cathedrals. Now, I'm not big on cathedrals. I love the architecture. I'm not a high church person. Churches give me like the heebie-jeebies, at least those kind of churches. And, uh, but if you get a guide, it gives you a little more understanding. So you go to Notre Dame or some of these other churches like the Sacre-Cœur, and the entrances are astounding with the sculptures and the frescoes. And... What you come to understand is that way before the university, these were the places of learning. So there was church on Sunday, and students would go and learn during the week. And, and the main entrances would have Jesus in certain frescoes in the incarnation. And then surrounding him, and you would never know this, are the great sages of grammar and literature and arithmetic. In other words, this was the gateway to learning. And even if you look at the architecture of later universities like Oxford, they put the chapel in the center because the queen of all the disciplines was theology. In other words, the ancient people understood there was no way you could make sense of learning unless God was at the center. And we've removed that today. Proverbs 14 says, the fear of the Lord gives us strong confidence. It's the gateway to knowledge. Two C.S. Lewis quotes. One is famous, one is not. The one is, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
When you know the scriptures, everything aligns and makes sense. That's what a university means, to take all the parts and understand them within the whole. Lewis said, in God you come up against something which in every respect immeasurably, immeasurably is superior to yourself. Even Plato and polytheists understood that. Even they had the wisdom to say, you know what, there is a fabric a moral world, a design to all of this. Here's the problem. And you've heard it or you've read it. You may not understand it. We live in a postmodern world, okay? Very simply, that means there are no absolutes. You know, we've gone from understanding absolutes to the idea everything's relative, right? In fact, the arbiter of what's true and not true is you. What do you think? What do I think? That's basically the way it works. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, prior to 1960, everybody believed little boys and little girls were different. Not only because of anatomy, but because of other things, right? Guys have 30% more body mass, etc. Uh, but the 1960s came along, and from 1960 to 1990, they convinced us and said, no, that's not really true now. The only reason girls are girls and boys are boys is because we gave the little girl a doll, and we gave the boy a truck. And so they came out that way. That went on for a long, long time. How do you think that worked out? In 2018, we have gender anarchy, where now you choose your gender, supposedly, right? Here's what happened, though, and nobody could foresee this. In 1990, um, they began to study the brain more than ever. There's been more study on the brain in the last 20 years than all the years before it. And guess what they found when they studied the brain? That girls and boys are different, right? <laughs> Time Magazine actually had a, go look it up, Time Magazine had a cover, boys and girls are different, and they had two toddlers there. They found out that girls hear better than boys. I think one of the reasons is women have children, and they need to hear crying babies wherever they are, right? Uh, women understand facial features, uh, the, the anatomy of a face, probably because they look at a baby a lot when they have children. Women underestimate themselves. Now, that's not a bad trait, ladies. It's a good trait. Uh, I actually figured this out for myself, coaching middle school girls. Now, I love coaching girls. Guys drive me crazy in this age. They all go to AAU camps. They're all going to make the NBA. They all know what they're doing. They don't even need you, right? Girls, send them down to shoot free throws and go take a phone call, and an hour late, they'll still be shooting free throws. <laughs> Guys, they won't even be in the gym anymore, Okay? But I, I would go home at night and tell my wife, I don't know if I should be coaching girls basketball. Because when you coach, you're trying to instill a killer instinct into a kid, and I don't think this is the way they were made. I really don't. And it's true, that's not the way they were made. They were made to be cautious. Because rearing children, you have to kind of stay alive to raise them, right? Boys, on the other hand, are obsessed with moving objects, taking things apart, breaking things, when they draw pictures, it's war and battle. You know the drowning rate for boys and girls is 9 out of 10 boys. And for car accidents, it's 7 out of 10 men. Because they're risk takers. They were designed that way. Which is still why at age 55, when I go to somebody's house with a pool and I'm on a balcony or a deck, I'm still calculating, can I make it? Can I make it? I, <laughs> why? Why? Why is that in me? It's the way I was designed. Why do guys sit around instead of enjoying something and say, hey, do you think we can, uh, 
Why do we take things apart? It's already put together. It doesn't make any sense. We live in an age of moral relativism. No rules. No absolutes. This is snuck into the church, by the way. Where now we, we think we should dialogue. Is there really a trinity? Is there really a hell? Let's dialogue about this. Now, I'm all for dialogue. But, but, but here's the idea. We're training people to say, we're so glad you're here. Because now we can figure out these things that we never understood for 2,000 years. We are so glad you're here. No, these things were established. I don't have to prove if algebra is true. I already know it is. Great minds have figured it out. Jude said what we believe was once and delivered to the saints. Read the early church fathers. They knew all of this. Nothing's new under the sun. So I love dialogue. I'll sit around and say, hey, let's, let's look at these scriptures. That's fine. But the idea of what do you think it means? What do I think it means? It doesn't matter what we think. It's what God has already said. It's not complicated. Again, Plato understood this. He said, knowledge came to us like a flame of life, as a gift of the gods. Before we ever began to philosophize, he said, wisdom found us. This polyethic, pantheistic man knew that there was a right order in the universe. This is why when Paul in Acts chapter 17, came to Mars Hill, the Boston of its day, the Harvard, the MIT. He sat with the Areopagus on Mars Hill, Mars Hill, the greatest philosophers, the intelligentsia of the world. He said, I perceive you are very religious because I see this stone to the unknown God. And he didn't tell them about Genesis or Moses or Egypt or any of that. They didn't know the Bible. But he said, God who created the world and everything in it, he is Lord of all. He's the Lord of all. He's it. There's no one beside him. And he preached Jesus and the resurrection. He didn't tell them about finances or their marriages or how to be happy. He taught Jesus and the resurrection. And that's wisdom. And, and, and these verses are amazing. Look, look at verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Now this is wisdom. You decide, who is it? What is it? Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting. Ooh, I hear a Christmas verse in there, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, even from everlasting Verse 23, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. Now, the greatest sentence ever written is, in the beginning, God. Uh, Shakespeare's Louis V is a close second, but in the beginning, God. And every religion has a creation myth, but none of them are viable. In the midst of pantheism and idol worship, in the beginning, God. Science has their beginning, which is ridiculous, right? The primordial soup. In the beginning, God. We value that so much. Solomon's saying, whoa, we're going before that. Tilt, right? The mind just doesn't work that way. This isn't dark matter. This is nothing, which is different than dark matter. This is nothing, nothing, nothing. 
This is Jesus saying, I was one with the Father, the Father was one with me, the Holy Spirit. We were in complete harmony. And by the way, if you think God created us because he was lonely, that's heresy. God was infinitely one in complete joy with himself. Solomon's bringing up creation because there's no way around it. Romans says you're without excuse. If you never hear one lick of the gospel, all you got to do is look at this world and know there's a God. Genesis talks about creation. The Psalms say the Lord spread out the earth with the span of his hand. Uh, can I give you some of my favorite verses? Isaiah 40, you might want to mark this down. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth? You know your house has 40 pounds of dust a year? Aren't you glad I looked that up? Some of you neat freaks, 40 pounds of dust a year? There, dust, there's books written on dust. The ocean, the, the salt, like dust is like all over the place. God measures it. He has scales for the mountains, and he has the hills in a balance. In other words, the globe is perfectly balanced. And who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Uh, who has counseled him? See, what Solomon's setting up is, is there authority? Yeah, there is a God who created everything, and by the way, he didn't need your help. And he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the last. He's the creator and sustainer. All things were created by him. In his own wisdom, he laid all this out. Job said he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole of heavens to establish a weight for the winds. We didn't even understand that about cubic volume of air until about 300 years ago. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, God searched it out. I share with you Proverbs 8 is one of my favorite chapters because I like to nerd out on things like this where the Bible was way ahead of man. And it talks about the fountains of the deep. It talks about water. It talks about God measuring the clouds. Again, this was not understood in that day. But today we know what makes our planet inhabitable and unique is water and air, right? No water, no air, no life. And so we happen to be the one planet in skillions of galaxies that have this. And so scientists tell us this is one grand coincidence now. I stopped counting coincidences at about 1,500 things that are a coincidence, right? Um, now they're telling us we got lucky. We got lucky. Wait a second, for 100 years you told us that science was measurable, that we could look at a microscope, that we could measure it, and, and, and we don't put philosophy into it. Now luck is involved. You're looking at the hydraulic cycle here, which means you're drinking the same water Newton drank, Moses drank. In other words, it's all recycled, right? God's a wonderful recycler. There's evaporation, condensation, it comes back, it fills the rivers. All the same water just keeps going around and around and around. It's brilliant. Leon Morris said, quotes Job, he said, For God looked to the ends of the earth and seeth the whole of heaven to make the weight for the winds and the weight of the waters by measure when he made a decree for rain and a way for lightning. Leon Mars said, we know now that the global weights of air and water must be in critical relationship to each other and to the earth as a whole to maintain life on earth. No other planet in the solar system has a significant amount of either air or water and no other planets are known to exist in the universe 
planet Earth is uniquely designed for life and its atmosphere and hydrosphere are the most important components of that design. If the weights of either air or water were much different than they are, wonderful coincidence, life as we know it would never survive. So the next time you're in an airplane, the laws you just read about in Job and here in Proverbs 8 is the reason why you could get to that place in an aircraft. It's the reason birds fly. It's the reason ships glide on the sea, in the pass of the sea, which the Bible talked about thousands of years before it was ever established. And so all this is to say that God set in order and motion a universe of laws. It's perfect. It's, it's perfectly timed and adjusted. And here's what Solomon's saying. If God did all that for the natural order, what did he do for the height of his creation? You and I made in the image of God. He gave us a world that was unfinished and said, be fruitful and multiply, and then told us how to live. And he said, if you live this way, you'll have life, and if you live this way, you'll have death. Some of you were living the death life. Just had coffee with a guy in the cafe who was snorting cocaine and drinking and going down the wrong path, and God wonderfully changed him at 35. He's 62 now, serving God, just graduated Bible school. There's a right way to live. There's a God who put cause and effect in the universe, not karma, just cause and effect. You sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. You sow to righteousness, you'll reap right things. In the highly educated culture that we are, why do we still have crime at a high rate? Why is there still violence? Why is there greed? Why is there illicit sex? Why is there 4,000 sexually transmitted diseases? Because God told us the way it works. Suicide's an epidemic again, heroin overdose. I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal where there's so many people that are going to need therapy in the future, they're creating apps for therapy. Go on an app, it'll walk you through the problems of life. So how do we leave Proverbs? I'm going to make a charge to a few groups of people, and then you can dig on your own. First, I want to talk to parents, raising children. Now, we did a family series in the fall, so I don't want to get into a lot of this. But we can't end Proverbs without the most famous proverb, Proverbs 22. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. I've had people shake their fists in the air. I raised my kids to serve God. I took them to church Sunday, Sunday night on Wednesday, and they're not serving God. The Bible's not true. Well, that's not what the Bible said. What the Bible says, and by the way, this is the totality of the Bible, is that when that bundle of warmth and love came home with you, what you were holding in your hands was a sinner. And if there's anything that's taught me about total depravity, it's children. Now, I've raised mine, and I saw it. You know where I see it now? In the grocery aisle, and it's ugly. Every child has the potential to be Hitler or Billy Graham, Cain or Abel, okay? The scripture says we need to train them. They don't come out right, okay? They come out with Adam's fallen nature. How do I know? I'm still looking for the school that taught every toddler to say no and mine and pull a sister's hair, okay? Why do they universally know that, okay? God put them in your life, and it's one of the grandest things in life, if you get the opportunity, 
to train them, to set them on the way they should go. Not only spiritually and morally, but to find their giftings, to put them on that path, not your giftings, not living your life through them. What did God put in them? What are they going to live out? My wife Monica and I would go to a parenting conference every three years. We read books on parenting. Uh, you people that are young, you need to get in the game early and educate yourself and re-educate yourself because you are raising another generation. We are training them in the way of godliness. We are not training them the way the world is training them, which is in happiness. Would you like to eat lunch now? What would you like for lunch? Do you want to go out and play? When do you want to go out and play? Uh, when I grew up, it was like, hey, here's dinner, and this is what it is, and eat it. That's yeah. Um, when, we, when we took our, if we took our children to a restaurant, they ate off our plate. I walk in restaurants now I can barely afford, and the kids are getting big entrees. What would you like, honey? What, what would you like, honey? Honey's going to be running around the table in three minutes and wreaking havoc with everybody in five millimeters, okay? But this is the world. This is B.F. Skinner, blank slates. We're raising them to be happy. We exposed our kids to certain things. We really did. We didn't shield them. Shield them from some things, expose them to others. When we exposed them to things, we told them what we believed and what we thought was true. Uh, we shielded them from other things. When my son went to high school, he said, Dad, it was so weird when we went to lunch, I couldn't even join in the conversation because I had like 15 years of deleted pop culture from my life. I knew nothing they were talking about. We're training them the way they should go. We're not exasperating them. Heard a heartbreaking story when I was in Dallas this week about uh, kind of a hovering dad who raised his son and wanted his son to be perfect and the kid went to college and it was time to go home for Thanksgiving and it was the day they were picking him up and he wasn't coming out and they called the cell phone and his sister ran up only to find him hanging in his dorm room. Because two weeks earlier he got arrested for drunken driving and he thought his dad would never forgive him because it was going to be a blot on his record and he would never, he wanted to be an astronaut because his dad raised him that way and now he knew that was a blemish on his record and he felt like his life was over. That's not what we're trying to do. That's not training them the way they should go. Proverbs is written to sons and to daughters. Proverbs 4, 1, children, hear the instruction of your father and be attentive to knoweth understanding. Proverbs 20, verse 7, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, his children are blessed after him. The next charge I want to make is to singles. Christianity gave singles their value in life. In the Roman Empire, if you were single, it was almost a crime. When Paul said, I wish you were all like me, he was saying there's a value to singleness. And when I teach 1 Corinthians 7, I always say there's the gift of singleness. Some people will be single their entire life, but that's a gift. Most people will marry. Um, then there's singleness as a gift. In other words, until you get married, you have this wonderful gift of time which Paul said you could use for the gospel and serving and living out and, and doing whatever you do. Uh, the Bible says it's not good that man or woman be alone, so marriage will be in the cards for most people. Can I tell you not to settle? Can I tell you not to settle? To find someone with your values? Uh, the most famous chapter in Proverbs is the last chapter, Proverbs 31. 
Most people don't know that it's a proverb of King Lemuel, which could be a pen name for Solomon, but this is written by his mother. His mother told him this. And she said, who can find a virtuous wife? And the answer is, not many. For her worth is above rubies. Her husband safely trusts in her. She's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She's, she's an entrepreneur. She's industrious. She considers a field and buys it. She uses her profits to plant a vineyard. She makes extra money. She stretches out her hands to the, the staff. In other words, she looks for justice for those who are impoverished. She makes tapestry for herself. She doesn't have to go to Nordstrom. She can make her own clothes, fine linen and purple. She's known in the gates. She opens her mouth with wisdom. Her tongue is the law of kindness. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears God, she'll be praised. If you read that to someone on an airplane, they would never believe it was in the Bible. The greatest emancipator, the greatest egalitarian work is the scriptures. And if you find this woman, guys, you find life. If you find this, if you find a man who's a poet warrior like David, a husband, a protector, you found a wonderful thing. Don't settle. Let God lead you to the right place. And finally, I want to close with Jesus. Because he is the totality of wisdom. All the Godhead dwells in him bodily. And we saw him. John says we tasted and we touched it and we, we, we felt who he was. We saw the image of God. John 1 says Jesus was full of grace and truth. See, that's what made him different from everybody else. He was full of grace and truth. The grace in him fed 5,000 and healed people. He was the most benevolent man that ever lived. That's why we mark time, B.C. and A.D. by the year of his birth. But you know what they did to the most benevolent man that ever lived? They crucified him. Religious people crucified him and civil people crucified him. Because his truth showed them that their deeds were evil. He exposed them for who they were. But the grace side of him was wonderful. Come learn of me, for I am lowly and meek, and my burdens or light. To those who listened, fishermen became wonderful scholars, turned the world upside down. Despised tax collectors became amazing church leaders. John Newton, a slave trader, wrote the greatest hymn still sung in churches today. Atheists became saved. The down and out became power brokers. And he's changed life for 2,000 years, and he is the embodiment of wisdom. The one thing I want you to know about Christianity is you never follow a man and you never follow a movement. You follow Jesus. We are only arbiters and dispensers of truth. That's why you have Bibles. Jesus is the source of all wisdom to all that believe. He is the light that shines in a dark place. He is the one that we follow. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is a God who cannot lie, who's immutable and unchanging in all his ways. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves you more than you'll ever imagine. And he's giving you a path to life. Starting the book of 1 John, the Marcus, we're moving through the Bible. 
We did Proverbs as a little diversion. We're back to 1 John. We'll go to Jude. We'll start Revelation in September. The opening words of John, John says, this little letter by this profound man, this little letter says, these things I've written to you that your joy might be filled. Following Jesus should be the most joy-filled experience of anyone's life. It's not a terrible awful thing that we're living, we every day are discovering the God of the universe who created all things and has a wonderful plan for our life.